tell you what, there's some songs that sometimes the music stops and you just keep on singing. If you're going to have a song stuck in your head today, what better than one that talks about the goodness of our God? This morning, um, as we get ready to start, uh, one, I, I, this week I'm, I'm wearing a shirt from um, my sister in Christ and friend, Summer Stanley, and um, I was just, I was, something It was just on my heart to pray for Summer uh, this week, and, and I hope she's doing well in, in Australia. Um, but then I was kind of unplugged from some different things this week, and I got notice of one the shooting that happened at a Kroger in uh, Kentucky, and it was said that the, the the gentleman who was a part of that first went to a church who had just finished a prayer meeting, and the doors were locked, and so he he left upset and went around the corner to a Kroger. And did the shooting there. And then yesterday, uh, I believe there was a shooting that happened at a um, synagogue in Pittsburgh. uh, One in which uh, several congregations met at. Um, Those of us who have stepped across the line of faith have Jewish roots. Are you with me? Paul talks about in Romans how we have all been grafted in to this thing. So this morning, I mourn with my brothers and sisters. As they prepare um, to just have more conversations in their community about what took place. Um, I would like to start off this time with uh, just some prayer for those two communities. And that um, we become even more vigilant about um, taking the gospel outside the walls of a building and truly investing in the lives of those around us because we don't know what exactly they're going through. And being loving and caring um, in a way that seeks to restore and to heal. And so let us start. Father, we thank you for this morning, and as our hearts are heavy over the loss that has been suffered in other communities, we ask that you would be with those families that are surviving, um, that you would bring them peace and comfort. We ask, Father, that this be a time that the community um, pulls together, that they would recognize even more of how um, you've, you've had a plan to use your people to direct creation back to you. That in these times of tragedy, that um, we'll be reminded of the love that you have for us and for all of creation and the charge that you've given us to be agents of reconciliation in our time. I pray, Father, that um, despite different things that may 
come out. May we look for uh, greater ways to love those who are not like us. May we look for greater ways to dig into relationships with those that are not like us. So we just lift both of these situations up and we pray these things in our own son Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. And if this is your first time visiting the High Crest campus of Fellowship Bible Church, I want to let you know that uh, today as I speak, there will be page numbers on the screen and those page numbers will correlate to the blue Bibles that are in your seats. If you don't have a Bible, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible that's easy to read, um, then please take that one as our gift to you. Um, If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, doesn't have one that's easy to read, please take that one and give it to them as a gift from the both of us. Now, we do that for a reason is, one, it's important to us that you know that the things that we are speaking are from the scriptures. And so we want you to be able to get into them for yourself. And so that's why we put the page number for our main passage on the screen. And we want to um, help facilitate that in any way we can. This morning, I'll be um, closing out our series, um, Middle Manager, Handling Money God's Way. Um, and if you haven't been able to catch the other series, uh, the other messages in this series, or maybe you missed one or two, then go to our app and you can catch them there. You just click on the Highcrest uh, Campus link or tab and you can get them there or you can get them on fellowshiphighcrest.com, our webpage. This morning, as we close out, I want to take a fresh look at an old favorite. I want to take a a, a look at this because it seems like sometimes when our attention is fading in regards to something that it helps to gain a fresh perspective on it. So this morning, I want to take a look at Psalm 23, which is one of the most beloved uh, psalms. In the Christian faith is one that is well known. It's, it's kind of like like the song. Um, yes, Jesus loved me. It's one of those things that they teach you in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. It's, it's one of those things that you're exposed to at an early age. This is a psalm of trust, much like um, run this morning. And in, in the the psalm that he read to start us off with was a psalm of ascent, which really fits being read in the middle of worship through music because the psalms of ascent were psalms that were sung by the people of God as they were on their way to worship. This is a psalm of trust. And so trust is an important thing because in order to be willing to devote ourselves to something, we must possess a strong sense of trust in that thing, whether it's said or unsaid. So if you would join me at Psalm 23 on page 331, if you're not already there, and we'll begin reading. And there it says this. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows and he leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness 
and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. The psalm starts off, verse 1, by saying, A psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, this verse confuses some scholars and causes them to kind of dismiss it or think less of it because of this. They can't really imagine a God who cares so much for his own. They can't really imagine a God that does see all that his own really need. And as we think about this topic of devotion and and how we spend our fundamentals, do you serve a God that good? And if so, how do you show gratitude to a God that that's good, that that says that he sees what you need and he, he provides all that you need? Now, the way that Hebrew poetry works is this. In English, what happens is you have iambic pentameter. What that simply means is that poetry is meant to rhyme. But in Hebrew poetry, they use parallelism, which means that they take um, this one thought and they just continue to hit it in different ways. And they just continue pounding this thought into your head by saying it in different ways. And so the rest of this song is going to re-emphasize over and over about this good God who sees you in your situation and all that's going on in this world, but he can be trusted in that he's good. So where do we go? We get to verse two. It says, he, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside quiet and peaceful streams. So, so the sheep eat, eat the grass and the shepherd has led them to this pasture. But the thing about it is, is that the sheep, the grass is so abundant that the sheep don't have to rush to eat, but they can lay there and reflect and they still will have grass left for them when it's over. Uh, and so they don't have to rush and beat out and worry about who's going to get their grass if they don't eat it. He's describing this, this picture. It's a beautiful one. And occasionally you find places like this in Israel, but, but there are few and far in between. It's this beautiful image. Sheep have been known in the, in the southwest deserts of America and the, in the Negev of Israel to die beside a, flash, a fast-flowing stream because um, Thursday as they are, and they might be, the water is rushing. And this is dangerous for them because sheep have been known that if they, they drink from rushing streams and fast-moving streams, the water gets into their nostrils and it causes this type of pneumonia that causes them to get sick. And so Although they may be thirsty, they won't drink from these fast-flowing streams because they get sick. And so what it says here, it says that that this shepherd has led them to this this peaceful-flowing stream where they won't get hurt by what's there in available form. He leads the sheep not just to water, but to gentle waters, as our God, who is our shepherd, does. This is a beautiful thing. So we don't have to be fearful of what he leads us to, but we can trust because the shepherd is there leading us. Verse three says he renews my strength. He guides me along right past, bringing honor to his name. So in in ancient times and very rarely in modern times, um, you have shepherds who care for the sheep as opposed to what you see 
in most places where you have this huge track of land and thousands of sheep in this pen. Um, and, and that's a difference what you see today versus what you had then. Because a shepherd is one who who is there and lives with the animals and journeys with the animals and sleeps beside them and is willing to risk his life for them. What you had in those days or in, today, in today's time, most of the time, is all these animals in this huge piece of land all pinned in again. Those are sheep keepers. What you had then is what's describing in this psalm is a shepherd. And there's a difference between the two. The shepherd is with the sheep. He's living there. I hope you're starting to make these these references and these cross ties between the New Testament when you hear that Jesus is the good shepherd. And he's there with him. There's a power in presence. There's a reason why um, we, we allocate and we just really reemphasize the importance of having community members live in the high crest community. There is a power in presence. And the sheep, the shepherd in the biblical Old Testament sense of the word was one who touched every sheep every day. And sheep that, that are not touched go wild and you can't get near them. And the same thing is true of goats. And, and, and so now when the lamb is born, what they would do is they would, they would take um, the lamb and they would let the mom kind of clean it up and nuzzle it a little bit. But then they would, they would separate the mom from the lamb. And then they would milk the mom and then they would feed the lamb with these bottles because they wanted the lamb to be bonded to the shepherd and not the mom. And, and what you would have is the mom would just bleed and bleed and bleed for, for a week and she would cry and cry and cry. And you would go in and you would nurture her and you would, you would brush her and you would groom her and you would care for her. But, and you would let them nuzzle through the gate, but you would never let her feed them. And the reason is, is because if you did then that lamb would become wild and you wouldn't be able to get near it. So how does that look in our spiritual lives? Are you being touched by the shepherd every day? Those who are not touched by the shepherd go wild. Are you being touched by the shepherd every day? If not, then, then that might be a strong indication as, as why your devotion may lack. How can you know if you're lacking the touch of the shepherd? Well, it begins to show in your lifestyle. You become more and more unruly according to the word of God. And you being led by the shepherd or are you being led by the shepherd or have you given into the bleeding of the world and reverted back to being fed by her? Look at your life. Are you lacking refreshment? In the Bible, um, when it talks about a shepherd, a, a shepherd who touches his animals every day, that is what it means by he, he renews my strength. It is literally saying that my strength is renewed by the touch of the shepherd. The thing that renews us each and every day, the thing that gives us the strength to get out of bed, the thing that gives us the strength to go into work that same day, the strength uh, that we need to keep parenting when parenting gets hard, the, the strength that we need to continue in our marriages when our marriages have conflict is being touched by the shepherd every day. How do you do that? By being in the scriptures, by being in prayer, and by being in community with the body of Christ. Then it says he guides me along the right paths. The word path here is a term for rut. It means a deep 
indention in the soul. Now, I know a lot of times in our world, it, 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 when you hear somebody says, I'm in a rut, it doesn't sound like a good thing normally. But I remember when Trisha and I were going through uh, premarital counseling and the uh, marriage counselor said, you need to develop some marital ruts. What that means is my wife uh, grew up in western Kansas and her parents still don't live on a paved road. And so when you drive down unpaved roads, the, the place where the cars continually drive down, there begin to be some ruts developed. And what happens is you can get on those roads and you can pretty much let go of the steering wheel and it just guides you, right? You just, you just press on the gas because you're in one of those ruts. And what he was teaching us was, he says, you have to get a mental picture in mind of the value and worth and all the great qualities that your spouse has. And every time you have to keep fixing your heart to those ruts that you have developed so that your heart naturally thinks of them in that way, in the way that God sees them. So what you see here when it says this, it's this channel, this deep indention. Um, and so if you were to go to the deserts of Israel, what you would see is you would see these mountains and hills that have all these different ruts cut into them at different heights along the hill. And if you were to stop one of the shepherds walking with his sheep and, and you would ask him, why um, are you on this path on, on this hill? He would say, because this is the same path that my father walked. And my father and his father before him walked. And then you would see one up there and you would say, well, why didn't you walk on, on that path up there? He said, because that's such and such path. That's not my path. That's not the one I've been taught. And what about down there? That's such and such path. But that's that's not my path. This is the path. You got to choose who you're going to follow. You got to choose who you're going to follow. You got to get in a rut. And then if he stopped to talk to the sheep, you would see or to talk to us, you would begin to see the sheep would just start to roam around. And he would say, you see what happens when I stop walking? The sheep just start to roam around. And you know what happened if I wasn't watching? He said one of the animals would take them down. And so he has to keep watch over the sheep. And then what would happen is. Uh, once he would get back on his flute and begin walking again, soon enough, the animals would get back in a single file and begin following him around the hill again until they got out of sight. See, sometimes the people that are supposed to be following us start to roam around and do their own thing because we've stopped walking. Are you leading your families, your ministry teams, your work groups in a way where they'll keep walking? Or have you stopped growing in your walks to where they just start roaming around behind you? You got to get in your rut. You have to find your path. You got to choose who you're going to follow and you got to make sure that you're still growing. So they would start moving. They would get going. This is a beautiful path. This is a beautiful image. Are you wondering or are you following? Are you just going from here to there, different things, or, or have you developed a path and saying, this is where God is leading me, and I'm going to continue on this path? You know, they say with small groups, they say your small group doesn't really hit a stride until you're about two years in. They say in marriage that, that you don't really have a, a beginning of your story until about after 10 years of marriage. 
They say the first 10 years, you just, you just, you messing up a whole bunch of stuff. It ain't until you got 10 years in that you really start knowing, like, this is who we are. They talk about when you're in a church, it's, it's not until you about four or five years in that you really start knowing folks there. We're so quick. We live in a microwave society, but we serve a crockpot God. This thing ain't no hibachi. We got to dig in. And so we get to, but before that, it's one of these things to say, why does he do all these things? Why do guys do all these things? He says, to honor his name because of his person. But then we get to verse four. Now, this one is going to touch you. So most of, most of us who learned this probably learned this verse in Old King James. And so you heard, uh, normally when you were recite this, you say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what we've learned through more biblical research is that it's really a wrong term. And it really should say um, the darkest valley. And, and, and what it's simply saying is it's not, although that's a, that's a nice sounding phrase and it sounds poetic, it's really any path you're on in which there's something to be afraid of. And if, you, if you're walking on a path and there's nothing to be afraid of, then you got to question if you're really following Christ. Because the New Testament talks about the wide path and the narrow path. And when you get to the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was talking about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the thing that made that road so treacherous is it had all these turns and different things that you couldn't see around the next curve. And so it was this image of I was following God. And when I'm following God, I can't always see 100 miles down the road. That's the part about trust. If you got a vision that, that, that you're securing that doesn't scare you and keep you up at night, then you got to ask if you, if you trust in God or you trust in what you can do. That's powerful. It says, in the presence of the shepherd, he says, even though I walk through deep darkness, I fear no evil. It's the presence of the shepherd that keeps him feeling safe. How could you be not be devoted to someone who's down for you whenever and for whatever? It says your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the rod and the staff are two implements. The, the rod has a little hook at the end so that if a lamb falls into a crevice, it's able to reach down there and put his, his um, hook around the front two legs of the lamb and lift it up out of the crack it fell into. And then the rod, I mean, in the, in the staff can be used, one, to beat off attackers. And it's also this throwing element in case maybe a scout dog or something was coming um, to hunt as a pack that could scare it off by throwing it at them. And so it says that it's this ideal that this good shepherd is one who fully cares for his sheep. Then verse five, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. It says when um, he says that you prepare a feast before me, he's talking about leading the sheep to abundant uh, grass. But now how do you get um, a banquet of enemies in a pasture of abundant grass? How does that happen? Now, the enemies are the dogs on the top of the hills, the, the, the carnivores in the valley, the animals that are on the hunt that might be hiding in a cave or whoever those enemies are, be they dogs or lions or, or any other animal that could pounce on the sheep. But the sheep are unconcerned because they're being cared for by the good shepherd. So we serve a God 
that is so good that we're able to have only one concern, and that is being totally devoted to him. Because though our enemies may watch, we can still have peace because as long as we are in his care, they can't touch us. It goes like another favorite psalm is Psalm 41, where it talks about as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for thee. What he's talking about is, is if you've ever seen some a hunting show or something like that and the deer walks out in the cold of the morning and then he's going to get a drink. Right. Often you camp up around some water or something like that and the deer's coming out and then the deer hears you and the whole shiver goes over his body. So that psalm is actually saying, how do I continue to praise when I'm in a place that feels uncomfortable? How do I continue to, to be devoted when, when I'm in a place that's uncomfortable? When I know the enemy got me in the crosshairs. Here what you're saying is he's saying that, that even though I can hear the wolves in the woods that I can't see prowling and licking their chops, I ain't concerned. I know I split a word. He said, I'm not concerned with that. I can keep my focus on God. I can keep in my root. I can keep following God, even though I hear the animals out there growling, waiting for them to get a chance at me because the good shepherd is here. Now, this, the anointing of the head with the oil is language of a banquet applied to sheep. And so the shepherds learned a long time ago that um, to put olive oil over the muzzle of a sheep. And the reason they did this is, is because they had this thing that happens with sheep where flies would get in the nostrils of the sheep and then they would lay eggs which would turn into maggots and the maggots would climb up the nose of the sheep and eat their brain and sheep will literally fall brain dead. So the only way to prevent that from happening that they had, one of the ways to prevent that from happening was they would put olive oil. They would anoint their their muzzle with olive oil and that would keep flies from climbing in their nostrils and that happening. See, the reason that some of us are undevoted in our spiritual walks is that we have allowed too many things of the world to enter our minds and render us brain dead. We need to continually have the anointing of the shepherd on our lives if we are to be active and vibrant in our spiritual walks. And the cup runs over for the sheep. That is literally meant they have the abundance of water to drink. And so then we come to the end of this psalm, verse 6, that says, now this is one of them, them shouting verses. And it says, surely goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So surely, you get that word there? How many things in this world can you say surely about? How many things in this world? He says, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me. And that verb there is talking about literally of an animal that is on the hunt. And what I'm being hunted by is not the wolves and the dogs and the lions, but I'm being hunted by the mercy and the goodness of God all the days of my life. That's including this life and the one to come. So this psalm is this complete, um, enormous competence and trust in the goodness of God. And if, if you can trust in the goodness of God, then that's the start of Spiritual devotion. Now, why is all this important? How does this tie in with money? Well, uh, let me explain. 
See, most of us track with this psalm until we get to about verse five. And in verse five, we do something strange. Now, the context of this psalm all deals with a sheep and his shepherd and his shepherd. But around verse five, we switch the image when it's talking about a banquet. We switch it to this middle uh, middle ages king in a court kind of thing. And we imagine this conquering king sitting at this banquet table with knights and stuff. And one of them's conspiring to kill him. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. One, David lived from one, uh, 1035 to 970 B.C. And the Middle Ages occurred from 500 to 1500 A.D. So that means David died about 1500 years before the Middle Ages even began and before knights and round tables even existed. That's one problem. David was Israeli or Middle Eastern and wrote to an Israeli or Middle Eastern um, audience. So they would have never had that thought when they read this song. This leads to another problem which, um, with the image switch, which is when we switch us from being sheep to a conquering king, we have put ourselves in the place of Christ. Christ is the good shepherd. Christ is the provider. Christ is the protector. Christ is the conquering king. He is the only one who has ever walked this earth who has the authority and the right to say mine. He's the only one. Our misinterpretation has led to a misidentification and our misidentification disables us from believing his promises and resting in him. If we are the provider, then it puts it all on us and there's no rest. Remember that beginning verse where it talks about, hey, I have all I need so I can lay down and reflect because I don't have to worry about somebody else getting mine. See, when it's all on you to provide, you can't rest. You always got to be grinding. Because it all depends on you. But see, when he is the conquering king, when he is the shepherd, then it all rides on him. Then you're able to have trust and rest in him. Our misinterpretation causes this misidentification, which places us where Christ should be, which causes our hearts not to be at rest, which causes confusion with our identity. And when we have this confusion of identity, we'll tend to live with a poverty mentality, which makes us sitting ducks for money and sanity. It all comes back together. The reason we hunger out there is so much because that's where we find our security. And if it all rides on us, then we have to do whatever we have to do to go get it. We need to trade places. We need to give the seed of our hearts back to Christ. We need to accept our place as sheep and make him the shepherd of our hearts. Only then can we view ourselves, our circumstances, and the way we use our gifts and resources from a proper perspective. Only then can we see ourselves the way that Christ sees us. Only then can we use our gifts and our time and our talents and our resources the way that God has intended. So how does this actually look? How does it actually look to affirm your identity as a child of God, as a sheep of the good shepherd, and live in light of the lavish resources of grace? Here are nine ways that we can affirm our identity in Christ. The first one is you're never alone. Although you may struggle with honoring God with the use of your resources, you must realize that it's not you against the world. I know it sounded good when Tupac said it, but it's just not true if you're a child of God. If you have been redeemed by grace and if you have been welcomed into his eternal family, it is absolutely impossible for you to ever be alone. 
There is no situation, no relationship, no location, no struggle in which you exist all by yourself. His promise was that he would always be with you. Number two is you have all the resources you need. The Apostle Paul says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1 and 3. And Peter says this in 2 Peter 1 and 3. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. In him, we can be content. I am content is a a phrase that is often misunderstood in our culture. Content does not mean I'm not good, but I'm not bad. I'm just kind of all right. But that's what we think of when we think about contentment, right? But that's not what it means at all biblically. It doesn't mean that I'm just kind of somewhere in the middle. What contentment means is that it means that um, when it's summer, then I'm joyful that it's warm. When it's winter, then I'm joyful that it's cold. When I have work, then I'm joyful that I have a job. And when I get laid off, I still have joy. God is enough. I am content. That's what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying in in all these different circumstances, I can still have joy. I can still be content. I can still serve God whether I got a job or I don't have one. Whether I have a lot of food in the freezer or I don't have food in the freezer. Whether I go in there and all I have is water or if I go in there sometime and I got a little crystal light, I can still be content. (laughs) Number three, you are forgiven. If you have stepped over the line of faith, when you fall short in glorifying God with your finances, you no longer have to hide in guilt and shame. Your standing with God doesn't depend on you, upon your personal righteousness, but on Christ. The grace that you have received through him has guaranteed um, your forgiveness, paid the penalty of your guilt, and lifted the burden of shame off of your shoulders. You no longer have to live in guilt and shame. You are forgiven. Number four, you are understood. Jesus came and took on flesh and was tempted in every way that we might be. He was able to experience every type of hurt that that we might. And in doing so, he demonstrated empathy rather than sympathy. The difference between the two is this. Sympathy is feeling for. Empathy is feeling with. God didn't want to feel for us, but he sent his son to take on flesh and to experience what the strain of living in a sin-broken world because he wanted to be able to say, you hurting, so I know what that feels like. I'm there with you. I've been there. You feel lonely? I've been there. People that you know have abandoned you? I've been there. You lost a parent? I've been there. You've been abused? I've been there. He took on flesh to be able to say, I'm feeling with you in the things that you're going through. Number five, there is hope. The scriptures do call out our sin, but they label they don't label us by them. We're known as sons and daughters of God. And here's why it's important. Um, the only time that it's OK to label yourself by your sin is when there's no more hope. The only time it's okay to label yourself by your sin is when there's no more hope. God calls us his own because there is no force in the universe, not any, not even sin and death that is more powerful than his love, mercy, and grace. 
That means no matter how far we fall away, there is hope for change in every area of our life and in every relationship we have in life. There's hope. Number six, you can't do it. See, it's not, it's not our weaknesses that are, that's our problem. It's our illusion of strength. Each time, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. We like to quote that verse, but it's, it's hard to, to live in that verse. When you think you're stronger, when you try to make yourself believe that you're strong, you won't seek the rest that comes in the powerful grace that you've been given when Christ is your shepherd and you are his sheep. So while you can't do it, he can do it through you. Number seven, you are capable. Wisdom is not just knowing um, the right thing to do. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do and being able to do it at the right time. So for those of us who have made Christ um, our shepherd, Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, that Jesus has made all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge available. That means that we don't have to be fools when it comes to our money. We don't have to become money insane. We're capable of being wise with our resources. Jesus gives us the wisdom we need through his power and his his word. Number eight, you can be whole. Many choose not to follow Christ because they think it means missing out on life. When in reality, it means truly experiencing God. In life for the first time. See, in each of us, there's this God-shaped, God-sized hole in our hearts that no matter how much stuff and relationships here on earth we try to fill it with, it just won't work. Only he can take that place. And number nine, there is an end. Just like this series in our lives, um, there's an end to the struggle with money and identity sanity. And the empty tune is our guarantee that the end is favorable for those who have allowed the good shepherd to invade their lives. So where do we end up at? Should you have a budget? It's probably wise to. Will a budget cure our money insanity? Most likely not. What is the cure? A changed heart by the grace of God. How does that happen? It begins to happen when we step over the line of faith, which I'm going to give you an opportunity to do in just a second. Does struggling with sin mean that we haven't really trusted Christ as our Savior, as our shepherd? No. But the scriptures do show a record that those who have come into intimate contact with Jesus, do lead changed lives. It is impossible for you to come in contact with the risen Savior of the world and not be changed. So what does that look like for you? What are one or two things that you can do and implement right now when it comes to your finances to show that you have come in contact with a risen Savior? For some, it might mean truly become a sacrificial giver for the first time in your life. For some, it might mean tithing for your first time in life. For some, it might mean learning how to give with no strings attached for the first time in your life. 
For some, it might mean um, learning to lower your living standard to live within your means. And for some, it might mean learning to lower your living standard below your means so that you can be more sacrificially generous to those around you and spend more time with your family and spend more time in your community. It might mean taking a job that is less demanding on you so that you have more time to pour into those that God has placed you around. For some, it might mean sponsoring someone through the next round of Rooted. See, although we offer Rooted for free here at the Highcrest campus, it costs us about $65 a person. Whatever it is, make the decision and go. Be faithful and trust in him. If you are here and you haven't stepped over the line of faith, then I want to give you that opportunity. And it starts by recognizing a couple of things. It starts by recognizing that God has a standard and none of us meet it. And because we fall short, we have all earned the penalty of death. But because of his grace and mercy, when we were at our worst, he sent his son to pay that penalty for us. And if we believe it's not by how much money we give, not by how many good deeds we do, not by how many services we attend, not by how many prayers we pray or scriptures we remember, but solely based on the work of Jesus Christ, then we've stepped over the line of faith from trusting in ourselves to trusting solely in him. And that's what we mean by stepping over the line of faith. If you haven't done that, I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to give you, I'm going to pray here in a second. And it's not the prayer that transitions you. Prayer is just an act of thanks. That's where the transition begins. That's where the heart change begins. That's where the abandoning money insanity begins. You can make a better budget. But that won't change your heart. It takes the spirit of God to do that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son being a truly good shepherd. We thank you for a character that we can trust, that we can put all of ourselves behind, that we don't have to struggle and strive on our own. We don't have to worry about provision on our own, but we can solely trust on you. Well, there's someone here today that's been trying to earn your favor on their own. I pray that today would be the day that they rest for the first time. That they would simply say, I can't do it. But Jesus already did. So, Father, be with us. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the Son, Jesus' name. Amen.